Good morning. It's good to see everyone here, and thank you as well for making me a part of this conference. My first time here, and grateful for the warmth shown. And as hard as it was, brother, thank you for that very probing, searching word. And what has been on my heart, sometimes maybe I'm the only one, but sometimes you come to a conference with a message and you wonder, is it what I should speak? But I think that what we have heard already has very much in keeping with uh, a few thoughts that I have on my own heart. Psalm 139, please. And likely you know already the verse that I'm going to read. Psalm 139, verse number 23. As we read these words, just notice how personal it is. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me in the way everlasting. To the New Testament, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Several short scriptures to read. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now look at Second Timothy, please, and chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, or those who claim they belong to the Lord must turn away from all wickedness. Two more short scriptures. First Peter, please, in chapter 2. We're reading this at the table this morning. First, Timothy, or First Peter, chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain, turn away from fleshly lusts, which war, which war against 
our very souls. Last of all, Romans 13, please. The latter part of Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 11, and that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantedness. When you look at those four words, you say, those are really bad ones. But look at the next pair, not in strife and envying, right alongside the first four. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision For the flesh, to indulge it, or to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now God will bless his word, we know that. Did you ever use Google Earth? I think every one of us, or many of us anyway, we have used that. Speaking of technology, it's uh, most interesting. It's a little bit unsettling too. Because uh, you type in an address on your computer and all of a sudden the picture of the earth shows up, uh, a little bit of space beside it, and then it begins to zero in. And it comes to the focus point that you are looking for, and then if you hit the button that says Street View, you, you, you're amazed. The first time I saw that, I was amazed and I thought, that, that's my house and, and, that's my, and that's me. And you, you, you forget that there are big eyes up there and, and, and they're watching. Now, before the days of uh, Google Earth, there was an angel one day that took John and he said, uh, come, come with me, I want to I show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And, and, and he says, he took me up to a, a, a great and a high mountain and he showed me. He showed me something that I couldn't see without getting there. I couldn't see it without that kind of a perspective. I needed to get above it. I needed to get away from it so that I could honestly and openly examine it. My young brother David last night, I'm sure that others noticed too, but he was praying for the year ahead. We don't know if we have that year. And uh, we don't know how long it will be before the Lord comes. But with that in mind... What is on my heart, the exercise of my heart, is this thought. My life, in the year 2012, and for however many days, months, and years that God gives me, looking ahead and looking at my life honestly before God. It has been illustrated, and I'm sure you have heard it and seen it yourself It has been said that my life is like the the little dash that's between two dates on a tombstone. You've all heard that. And you go to a cemetery and you realize there's there's a lot of tombstones here. There's a lot of dashes here. And it is true in a cold, calculated, sterile way that that's what it is. 
between year such and such and year such and such. That was the existence, that was the life of that individual with that name on the tombstone. But every one of those little dashes represents an eternal soul, an eternal being. And those dashes that were on tombstones represent people that lived, moved, worked, and then died on this earth. And every one of those persons was important to the eternal God because he has made you and he has made me. And you are vitally important to God. I love the verse from Jeremiah 29. I'm sure you do too. Listen to them again, just the first part of the verse. God says, I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans, he said, that I have for you. And so when we think of this subject, and if the Lord uh, gives help, During the sessions that uh, I have been given, I want to look at a number of different different things in in connection with the subject of what is my life. It's a question that is that begs asking from James chapter four verse fourteen: What is my life? What is the purpose of my existence? Why am I here? And what about me as an individual before a holy God that we have been hearing about already this morning? This, this God who made me, this God to whom I am vitally important, He didn't make me just for the period of the dash. He made me for eternity. His desire was, His longing is for every single one of His creatures to be with Him forever and forever. We are going, if we belong to God, we are going to be with Him forever, for eternity. That's the future that we have. That's the tremendous thing that we have to look forward to as children of God. And we say, yeah, but that's then. And that's who knows when it's going to be. And, and all the things that are going on. You know, I have my life. No, no, it's, it's your life in God. It's your life and my life in God, in Christ. So what about it? What about our life before Him? There's something that has to be, however. And that is that we have to be honest. You say, well, aren't we all honest? Well, I can only speak for myself, and no. No, I'm not. Sometimes I fool myself. Three little points, and then we'll look at them as time allows. First of all, facing the facts. Psalm 139. David said to the Lord, I I want to face it. I want to face it how it is. I I want to know the truth about myself. Facing the facts. And then from 1 Corinthians, and then from 2 Timothy, I want you to consider this. The truth of firming up, if you allow me, and I'm I'm not very good at alliteration, but these came before me this way, but firming up or firm on a foundation. Firm on a foundation. Where are we resting? What are we resting on? And is it the right thing that we're resting on? And then last of all, in the passages we have read together, fighting our flesh. 
fighting the worst, at least in my mind, in my experience, the worst of the enemies that there is, fighting my flesh. And so these all are integrated. They all have to do with this question, what is my life? When David prayed this prayer, when he wrote these words, he was making himself very vulnerable. He was opening himself to his God. He said, search me. He he says, what I want you to do is penetrate deeply. I want you to get that right down to the very core of it. I want you to search me. I want you to try me. I want you to show to me exactly what I am. Exactly the path that I'm walking. Exactly the things that I am doing. I may not even understand it myself. The Apostle Paul As he's writing to the Corinthian believers, he said this in chapter 4. He says, I I don't even trust myself. I, I don't trust myself to make a proper examination. And he says this, it is the Lord himself who will examine me. The Lord himself who will examine me. You remember the letter, the the words written to the Laodicean church. And and I, and you know, sure, we're living in the, in that day. I think all of us would agree with that. But the point is this. The people didn't know what they didn't know. They they didn't even know what they didn't know. Here's what God says about them. He says, you say. that This is what you say. As a church, as an assembly, you say this is how it is. This is our condition. This is how things are. You know, sometimes people, you, you meet other Christians and, and they ask you, so how's things in the assembly back where you're from? And, you know, you say whatever you say. And God says, you say it's this way. And then he says, but I know. The sad thing is they're different. They're different. What you say about yourself, what you honestly think about your condition isn't the way it is. Let me tell you, he says, let me tell you the way it really is. You don't understand. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're needy. This is how it really is. And on the other side, you're saying, everything's good. Everything's just fine. We're prosperous. We're doing just fine, Lord. But you're not. And in God's assemblies, in the assembly of which you are a part, the assembly here in Midland Park and so many that are represented... What is the condition of the assembly? Could I tell you this? The condition of the assembly is exactly the same as your condition and mine. That's what it is. So, sometimes it's very, very hard to face facts. By the way, facts are not altered at all by what we think. Facts are not altered by circumstances. They're not altered by opinions. The facts is the facts. It is what it is. We all understand that truth. So wouldn't it be far better for us to face the truth of our condition before God? Obviously, I didn't know what my brother was going to be reading from this morning. But uh, on my notes, I have Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. He was one of three men that I was thinking about 
in connection with them understanding their condition. The first one was Peter. The second one was Isaiah. The third one was Daniel. And the reason I mention them that way is this, because there was something true about every single one of them that brought them to the point where they made the kind of confession that we have been hearing about already today. You remember that when Peter saw the Lord and he saw who he was, he realized it's the Lord. And then he says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. What, what, what caused that response in his heart? He came into the very presence of the Lord himself, the Lord God creator, the son of God, the Lord Jesus. And he comes into his presence and all of a sudden, all of that, uh, all those layers are stripped away, they're torn away. And he sees himself as he is. And he says, I'm a sinful man. That's what I am. He faced the facts. Isaiah. Chapter 6, you know the passage well. He said in verse 5, at the end of the verse, he said, my eyes have seen a king. And the beginning of the verse, he said, woe is me. I am a man. I'm a man of, 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 of sin. I'm a man of a sinful heart. I'm a man of unclean lips. He understood his condition. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord. I saw him high. I saw him lifted up. I saw the glory of his very bearing, his presence, and those, those fiery, angelic beings who flew and cried, Holy, holy, holy. I watched all of that. And all of a sudden, all the, all the facade is stripped away. And he says this, Woe is me. The previous chapters, he's pronouncing woes to others, but now... Now it comes home to roost. Woe is me. And Daniel, chapter th- or verse 3 of that chapter, listen to what it says. He says, I turned my face to the Lord God. And I said, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside. When he got his eyes on the Lord, when he saw the Lord and heard his word. So, brother and sister, what is your true spiritual condition? Many times we can fool others, we can fool family members. We can't fool God. He knows. He wants the best for us. He has created us ultimately for his pleasure, for his honor, and for his glory. So are we willing to pray that prayer that David prayed and say honestly, search me. Search me, O God. Try me, O Lord, and know my heart. We don't, I don't know my own heart. I don't understand my own heart. I, I can't, I can't understand. I don't have the ability to understand it. But when we come, come alongside the presence of the Lord, he shows us those things by his presence and by his word. But I, think, I want you to think for a few moments of
what we have read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We were looking first at looking inside and now uh, consider the idea of looking around you, looking at what we're standing on. All of us have convictions, don't we? You say, well, I never thought of it. Well, we do. We, every, every single one of us has convictions. We may not realize it, but there are things that, that we stand on. There are things that we hold to. And I'm not, I'm not deciding whether they're good or bad just at the moment, but we do hang on to certain things, and it's because of that that we do certain things, or we live a certain way, or we go certain places and don't go certain places, and, and it's because of convictions. Now, conviction is something that is, is, is closely, dearly held. It is something that we believe on, that we latch onto. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, you remember that, um, that uh, people believed and people taught that the earth was flat. The fact is, I understand that even today there's a thing called the Flat Earth Society. I mean, you want to be blind? Okay, fine. Um, but in those days, people lived and died on that. that. That's what they stood on. They, they held to the fact that there, the earth was flat and it was not spherical as we know it to be today. Now, their convictions were based on flawed information, flawed materials. They, they, had, they had the right attitude, if you will. They, they, were, they were hanging on to what they thought was true. They were standing on it, but it was fundamentally wrong. So what are your convictions? And on what are they based? What's the foundation for our convictions? Have we ever thought that for certain things, some things in our life, that the convictions that we hold aren't based on anything that's valid? You say, well, that gets, that gets a little uncomfortable. Good, because it causes us to search it and to search it out very, very carefully. I want to say something here that I don't know, don't know why the Lord has put it on my heart, but I'm going to say it. Before I go any further, just in speaking about convictions, I want to ask everyone here today, what are you resting on for eternity? You say, this isn't a gospel meeting. I know. We've been hearing about sinners, though, haven't we? The reason that I'm mentioning this and doing so carefully is that I can't tell you the number of times that different people have said to me in connection with certain persons or certain groups of people that sit at the Lord's table on a Sunday morning. And it is said something like this. I don't believe the root of the matter is in them. What are you resting on for eternity? I say that right here first. You can't, I can't afford to make a mistake. Many here likely would know um, the late Albert Joyce. And uh, he was, as I understand it, he was saved when he was a boy of five. He was at a certain 
place having some meetings, and uh, he was in a car with two other brethren who were in that assembly, and they thought they would tease the man a little bit. And uh, so they were talking to each other with Mr. Joyce in the back seat, and they said, you know, this idea that a five-year-old could ever get saved, I mean, goodness, we all know that's not true. And uh, he let them go on for a little while, and then he stopped them, and he said, he said very solemnly, he said, search me well, boys, it's for eternity. Are you on the rock? Are you really saved? I, anyone who knows me knows that I, I, don't, I don't preach on false profession, and that, that's, that's not what I do. But this has been on my heart, and so I want to ask you real plain, do you truly know Christ as your Savior? Sometimes people say, you know, I, I just can't seem to make any progress for God. I can't seem to, I can't seem to get rid of the things that, uh, that plague me in my life, things that I used to do before I was saved. And, and maybe the problem is that you never were. I point no fingers at all. But please be very, very careful. Wouldn't it be tragic to be on the wrong side of a closed door and to hear those words? I never knew you. So, what is your foundation? What are you resting on? Anytime we depart from the Word of God, and there are many other good things, but there is only one fundamentally good thing, that is the standard of the Word of God. Anytime we depart from the Word of God, we are in danger of of putting our foundation of... uh, Maintain our convictions on something that is, that is fundamentally flawed. And so, when there's a question that comes up, or when I'm entertaining the idea of, well, what about this, and, and for all these years we've been doing this, and, and why? I, I want to know why. And so, you go and you listen to so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and, uh, okay, well, it must be true because they said so. Well, maybe it isn't. We always need to go back to the standard. We must go to the Word of God. You've heard that this morning already. We must read and understand our Bibles from the book of Ezra. You remember that when they presented the Word of God, they presented it so the people could understand it. They presented the sense of it. Here's what it really says. I'm not going to take these words in this translation and make a whole philosophy out of it and present it to you as gospel truth. That's unfair for anyone who does that. It's naive when we accept it. What does the Word of God really say in its context? That's the only, the only foundation we can really rest on. Firming up that foundation. Examining it. God hasn't changed His word will never change. His word is always good. And where on the scriptures, where in the word do we rest? One little statement before I pass on to my last point is this. What we believe, we obey. And nothing more. What we believe, we obey. And nothing more. 
We can't say. We shouldn't say, well, this is what I believe, and, and we don't do it. We don't, we, we don't obey that. Anyone or everyone has the right to say, you don't really believe it, because if you really believed it, you would be doing it. It would be evident in practice in your life. What we believe, we will do. We will obey. Nothing more than that. So maybe we could say something like this. Well, then, we maybe don't believe very much. Because we don't obey very much. You know, you read the Old Testament, you say, oh my goodness, over 600 rules, 600 laws. Say, and I've said many times, and I still say it, I'm glad I don't live under the law. I'd probably be dead, first of all. But I'm glad I don't live under the law because of all these things, all the various regulations and the rules and the rituals that, that we're carrying. No, but when you come to the New Testament and... Um, they, it's, it's not that any of them were wrong, but they're not there. There's some things that are, are there. There's the doctrinal truth of the New Testament teaching. As children of God and God's assembly, there are things that are there for us, and he expects it. He deserves the right to be obeyed when we consider all that he has done for us. Now, last of all, in the passages we have read together, the idea of fighting the flesh. We, we looked inside. Search me, O God. Examine me. Penetrate deeply into the heart. See, see what I really am. I want to I wanna see what I am. Are we willing to open our hearts to God? Be that vulnerable and say, I want you, Lord, to search my heart and to make it known to me where I'm in error, where I'm not what I should be. See if there's anything that is offending to the God of heaven, and help me to put that out of my life. And then to look at what I'm standing on. Here I am, and I'm living my life, and, and I go through, you know, I, I'm part of this assembly, or I, and I do this, and, and this is what I think, and this is what I believe, and this is how I live, and well, well, well how come? What are you basing that on? What foundation are you standing on? And now the practical day-to-day life, fighting the flesh. We all know that um, the Bible speaks of three enemies. They're, they're evident. There's the devil. And there's the world. Not, not the globe, but the, the world philosophy that we live in, live under every day of our life. And then there's, there's the flesh. There's me. A lot of times um, I've seen T-shirts with them on, and likely you have too. Um, the, the t-shirt says, uh, the devil made me do it. No, no, the devil didn't make you do it. The devil gets blamed for a lot of things that aren't his fault. Oh, he's the master deceiver, all right, and, and he knows how to twist and pull and turn just the right way. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You see that? Here is this woman before sin entered into the world, but she was a human being capable of sin, obviously. And what does he do? He appeals to her flesh. That's what he does. This is going to make me bigger and better and broader than I am. I'm going to be a better, bigger person because of this. And she accepts and believes that lie. And so he brings her down. Yes, he's an enemy. Yes, he is subtle and powerful. But yes, my flesh is my worst, by far, my worst enemy. And we need to fight that. If we go to Romans chapter 7, 
Of course, uh, the passage is there, the verse is there. The Apostle Paul, he's sort of bearing his soul, isn't he? And he says, I, I see this, 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 um, I see this law that's inside of me. And, and inside of me, there is this law that tells me that there's the, the, the good and, and there's the bad. And, 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 and this spirit of evil and this spirit of wickedness, and it's always battling against what I fundamentally, as a Christian, what I want to do. And, and it just goes back and forth. And what I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, those I do. And, and he just, it's almost like you can see him throwing up his hands and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? And then he gets his eye on Christ. I'm so thankful, he says. I thank God that he's the one that's going to give me the victory. It's a battle that never goes away. I used to think when I was younger that um, as you got older, this got easier. Uh Uh-uh. Doesn't happen that way. Not even a little bit. In fact, um, as one man said, it gets more worser. That's what happens. That battle never, never goes away. And the older I get, the more I realize how depraved I am. As a sinner, that sinful nature that will never change. Ultimately, the day coming when we'll be delivered from that nature. Likely, many have heard that, um, and I I tried to research, find out where the original came from. I couldn't. There was a Native American elder um, who spoke about two dogs that were inside of him. And likely you've heard this story before. Two dogs that were inside of him, and one was the, uh, you know, one was the the good dog. It was uh, always tried to do the right thing. And the other one was the mean and the evil dog. And it always seemed to be doing the wrong thing. And um, so in speaking about this, he was asked, okay, so which one wins? And his answer was, The one that I feed wins. The one that I feed wins. So sisters, brethren, which of the two natures are you feeding? You say, what do you mean? I don't understand that. I don't understand that picture. The last verse of uh, Romans chapter 13 that we read, this is what Paul was saying to them. He says, don't do anything that will allow you to indulge the lusts of your flesh. We've been hearing about the fact that, you know, so quickly we can get on a computer and, and, and do many good things, and, and that's wonderful. But just another slip of the key, and all of a sudden, oh, oh, oh. Now, what do we do then? That's going to happen to all of us. And believe me, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. What do we do then? We say, you know, that's, hmm, that's interesting. Interesting. The word we use, right? That's a lot more interesting. And we want to go down that path. Paul says, don't. Don't indulge the flesh. The moral fiber of our society, we all understand what it is and how badly it has fallen. And uh, so I leave you with that caution. Just as I finish, I have a couple of minutes I want you to think of some things that the Apostle Paul wrote about where he used the word, the same word, and that was flee. Flee. When we think of that word flee, we, meet, we think right away, run away from it. And that, that's a good thought. That's, that's the idea. But the idea really is to avoid 
at all costs avoid it because of the potential danger. That's the essence of the meaning of the word to flee. Avoid it at all costs because there is potential danger there that can wreak havoc in a life, that can destroy a testimony of a man and woman for God for the rest of their life. He says, don't do it. What does he say? He says, flee fornication. He says, flee idolatry. I'm not going to take time to read these. He says, flee youthful lusts. Avoid them at all costs. You can't help but uh, think of the first of them. You can't help but think of Joseph. Again, you know the story very well, which is good just so you can have this little mental picture. Here, here's, here's a young man in the very prime of his life, a good-looking, intelligent young man. He's in the house with a woman of the house all by themselves. The servants weren't there. And she grabs a hold of him. She, she wants him. Now he has got, at that moment, he has got a decision and a choice to make. He doesn't understand that down the road, a little ways, a couple of years, he is going to be number two in the kingdom. He's going to be number two as the ruler, really, of the whole world at that time. Second only to the Pharaoh. He doesn't know that. But Joseph, if you could see the end of this, Joseph, there's no way you can do this. Don't you realize what God has planned for you? Joseph, run! The price is way too high. Thank God he did what he did. He ran. He left his coat. I'm, how can I do this great wickedness against the Lord? He he battled the flesh and he won it. You say, but no one else was there. I mean, no one could have, you know, really fought. That's not the point. He did what he was supposed to have done as a man of God. And he got to know his God in that prison, in that sunken way. He got to know his God. He understood the design of God, the plan of God, when he realized what God was doing as far as preserving Egypt and preserving the known world at that time. He understood that, but he fled. Flee idolatry, Paul says. What's that mean? Does that mean that we should put all our little, you know, our little idols away? Is that what it means? I suppose in certain cultures that might be. I, I don't know. I was thinking of that just before this meeting and but for the most part, that's not what it means. It means anything, anything that supplants my affection for the Lord. Anything that becomes number one, priority-wise, between myself and God. And there's something that drags me over to the side. It's an idol. It is something that I love. It is something that I desire. And I love it above God and the things of God. Well, no, I can't be at the meeting tonight because I have to do... Well, no, I can't go to the gospel meeting because, I mean, for a long time I've had... Flee! The, the potential damage is inestimable. 
You say, well, how can there be damage there? Do you see what's happening in God's assemblies? Everywhere, because these things, in and of themselves, not wrong. Legitimate, to a degree at least. But what they're doing is robbing God. They're taking God's people away from God's house and the things of God. And we're paying the price for it. Last of all, youthful lusts. You say, well, isn't that the same as uh, fornication, immoral lifestyle? Well, it can be. But there are things that we lust after. Paul was writing to Timothy. He was at least 35 years of age at that point. You say, well, that's young. Well, I say it's young anyway. Um, he, he was a young man, but uh, he wasn't a teenager. I mean, isn't that what youthful lusts are? No, it's, it, it's those things that come from an immature understanding, uh, an elementary understanding of who God is and his demands on it. And if that is what our goal is, I, I want to have more money. I, I want to have a bigger house. I, I want to be the one who's, who's top dog in, in my company. I want to climb to the top of the corporate ladder. Those kinds of things, what are they? It's the pride of life that is coming out of me. Those youthful lusts, those immature lusts that we have as, as human beings. And they can rob us of God. Facing the facts. Firm on the foundation. What are, we, what are we really standing on? And last of all, fighting the flesh. May God help us to have the victory so that His name will be honored, His name will be glorified, and may God bless His word.